Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can click the like or subscribe button. You can also help out the show by donating using the tip jar link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I have a pretty exciting show for everyone today. The main story we're going to talk about is the latest publication by AstraZeneca in the journal The Lancet of their SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. And we're going to take a look at the data, look at the safety, and contrast that to what I talked about with regards to Moderna's vaccine last week. So definitely check out that show first and then watch this if you're interested. But that's going to be the main story. And then we're also going to touch on a few other biotech companies that I'm invested in that updated their earnings in the last little while for Q2. So that's going to do it for the show. Um, and really, that's not much going on in the biotech space, unfortunately. Lately, we've seen quite a sell-off in the XBI, and I think that's largely due to the executive orders announced by the Trump administration. When I looked at them, though, it didn't seem to affect the companies I'm invested in, which are mostly small and mid-cap biotech. Uh, these executive orders had more of an impact on drugs that are actually priced right now in the market. And the one in particular that's concerning for large-cap pharma is the one that forces companies to maintain pricing through the U.S. and ex-U.S. A lot of companies are able to charge a premium in the U.S. compared to ex-U.S., and now those are going to have to be normalized. And what that means is that often these companies will have to lower their price for Americans, which they didn't need to do before this. So that's kind of what's going on in the biotech space. Excitement in the market otherwise has to do more with the tech companies that just destroyed their earnings on Friday. So we saw huge increases in Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google. So the excitement seems to be flowing more towards those companies than the XBI, even though the XBI did recently hit all-time highs. Uh, personally, I managed to get on a road trip in the last week or so, and I checked out Sedona, Arizona. For those who've not been there, it's definitely worth checking out if you live in the U.S. It's a, it's a pretty gorgeous place, except for the heat. The heat is pretty insane, and as somebody who lives in San Diego, it's shocking to see the numbers go up to like 114 degrees Fahrenheit, but it was nice to get away for a bit. And one other piece of business i got to get through is I need to give a shout-out to a friend of mine named Dave Coggin. And the reason for this is that we had a friendly bet over a ping pong tournament yesterday that I would give him a shout out if I lost all the games against him. And he ended up beating me in every one of them. So with that, let's actually get into the meat of the show. And again, thanks everybody for all the support. All the emails and the tweets and the comments on my channel are very, very much appreciated. Um, it does go far with in terms of spreading the word and getting the podcast out there. So thank you for that. Now, the first company I want to talk about is Trillium Therapeutics, and they're sitting at around $550 million market cap. And we're talking about them today because they had a press release announcing a delay in data. And people were expecting a clinical update on their 621 and 622 product in the middle of 2020. And that's around this time now. And instead, what we're hearing is that they're going to provide this update at the American Society for Hematology meeting in December of 2020. So... It's about a six-month delay, not the end of the world, but there was really no relevant update provided in this press release. They mentioned that 15 relapse refractory CTCL patients have been enrolled in the first four cohorts, and they were treated with the 621 monotherapy at doses up to 1.4 milligrams per kilogram. They also mentioned that they completed dose-limiting toxicity evaluation of cohort 4, which is that 1.4 milligram per kilogram dose and they're now moving on to the 2.0 milligram per kilogram dose. So not really much to report. The stock sold off from in the sevens to around the fives and then was bought back up into the sixes. So 
I think my average position is around the fives and I decided not to take an additional position into it because I am pretty heavy in the stock. And yeah, it's an unfortunate delay, but I don't think the fundamentals of the company at all are in jeopardy. And some other things to note, if you do want to take a position in sort of a CD47 molecule, which is what Trillium is commercializing, uh, they did announce a solid tumor study, which is going to be starting pretty soon, and we're going to see data in that in 2021. So if they see good data in solid tumors, I think the stock could garner maybe a 5x valuation from where it is now. So that's kind of where I see Trillium eventually, and I plan on holding well into 2021. The next company I want to talk about is Viking Therapeutics, ticker symbol VKTX, and they're sitting at a $500 million market cap, and they're commercializing a thyroid receptor beta agonist molecule for NASH treatment. And I want to touch on them because they did a Q2 earnings report recently, and they mentioned that their Phase 2B Voyage study, which is looking at biopsy-confirmed NASH patients, is continuing to enroll, and they're also opening XUS sites, opening in Q3 of 2020. So enrollment actually does seem to be moving along nicely. And also wanted to mention that their primary endpoint is 12-week MRI PDFF data, which is a look at liver fat content. So because the primary endpoint is only 12 weeks, I think if you want to take a position in Viking to see if their molecule does have an effect on liver fat in NASH, you might want to do so pretty soon because I imagine that in early 2021, we're probably going to be seeing the data. In terms of how quickly they're burning cash, their Q2 net loss was around 10 million bucks. So with a cash position of around 263 million, it seems like the risk of them raising isn't very high. But again, Viking has had a history of going very slow when it comes to commercializing their products. It's been quite a while since their phase 2A data was released. And now with COVID, it seems like things are only gonna delay further. But I do have a pretty big position in Viking and I'm gonna be holding into that data to see what comes from it. And I am pretty optimistic. The next company I wanna talk about and one that I haven't touched on in a while is Bluebird, ticker symbol BLUE. And they're sitting at a $4 billion market cap. I've had a position in them for quite a while, and it has not done me very well, unfortunately. I'll talk about that in just a second on why that is, but the news that we heard is that them, in collaboration with Bristol-Myers Squibb, resubmitted their biologics license application to the FDA for their Idacel cell therapy treatment, BB2121, and this is for the treatment of fourth-line multiple myeloma. And I thought it was a good time to touch on Bluebird because I talked about Carrier Farm relatively recently, and they have a molecule that's also approved for fourth-line multiple myeloma. Now, like Carrier Farm, Bluebird is studying this molecule or a related molecule. I think they have another one, BB21217, and they're looking at earlier line multiple myeloma as well. So for each line of multiple myeloma, I think it's worth around, and this is just my personal opinion, around $500 million in market cap. So you can expect that if more delays happen, I could see more downside for Bluebird if they aren't able to get this BLA approved by the FDA. So they have a collaboration with Bristol-Myers, and the way they've structured it is that Bristol-Myers owns the ex-USA rights to this molecule, and they're going to pay a royalty to Bluebird. And then within the USA, I believe they split it 50-50. So they're going to be co-marketing it and then splitting the profits likewise. Um, if they are able to get positive data in earlier lines, this is going to boost the market cap from where it is today. And I think things that we can look forward to is insights into their non-cancer therapeutics. And the one in particular is the commercialization of Zinteglo. And this is a treatment for beta thalassemia. So this was approved in the EMA in some European states. 
uh, earlier this year, but we haven't really seen any real progress in terms of how the launch has gone, how well doctors are kind of adopting it into their own practice. So hopefully in their Q2 earnings report, which should be coming in the next couple weeks, we'll get some insights on that. But the reason why Bluebird has been hammered so brutally in the last little while is their cash burn is extremely high. I believe they spent in Q1 around $150 million in R&D expenses pretty much, and that's a quarter. And also the developmental timeline has just been going too slow. It's just been taking them way too long to commercialize these molecules while they're continuing to spend a ton of money. And now they did a raise earlier this year and they mentioned that they have a cash runway until 2022, but you know, I think they're being a little liberal with that and it's likely that in 2021 they're probably gonna need to raise some cash unless they can rein in some of that spending. And they could offset that if they are, are able to have a successful launch with Zinteglo as well as Idacel, but like we've seen, they have a bit of a history in taking some time with this. So we'll see what's going to happen. I'm still holding some shares kind of reluctantly, but based off of their earnings report in the next little while, I might decide just to sell, cut my losses there, and uh, put the money into something else or just hold more cash. So that's my update on Bluebird. And let's get to the feature story for today, which is talking about AstraZeneca, ticker symbol AZN, or AZN for my American friends. And they closed on Friday at a share price of 55.8, giving them a market cap of $73 billion. And now if you've watched my show to any regularity, you'll know that I don't really like investing in large or mega cap pharma. The reason for that is they don't move on catalysts like smaller mid cap pharma does. There's also a lot of you know difficult things to analyze like payer support as well as pricing. So for those reasons, and really the catalyst reason is the one that bothers me the most, it's, uh, it's difficult for me to evaluate. So I don't usually touch large cap or mega cap, and this is gonna be no exception. So if you were hoping to get some kind of interesting verdict at the end, uh, I'm not gonna be taking a position in, in AstraZeneca. But you know, for those who are interested in understanding how this vaccine compares to Moderna's, definitely stick around, because I'm gonna get into some interesting stuff. Now, in terms of their financials, their Q2 revenue was $6.3 billion, leaving them a net income of $1.4 billion. And their net current cash is at negative $3.3 billion. So they do have some debt on hand, but with a quarterly revenue of $6.3 billion, it's not really a big deal, and I'm sure they have no problem servicing that debt. Now, the makeup of the company's revenue is mostly from oncology products, and this is specifically due to approvals in non-small cell lung cancer or small cell lung cancer. So they have a robust portfolio in this indication. And you can see here that if 43% of 6.3 billion is kind of a standard oncology company's revenue for lung cancer, um, do the math in terms of other solid tumor companies that are smaller mid cap and what they could be garnering if they have a molecule that's superior to say AstraZeneca's. So, it's so for that reason that lung cancer is such a hot space and solid tumors in general. Now otherwise, they then split their revenue between cardiovascular, respiratory immunology, or other, which is kind of a grab bag of molecules that they've happened to have success in. So that's the breakdown of AstraZeneca as a whole. And then what they pivoted towards now is COVID-19 treatments. And they've split this between a treatment regimen, which is a mix of antibodies, or a vaccine, which is the most exciting one because being able to prevent the infection of SARS-CoV-2 is really the goal that we want here. A treatment is not ideal, at least the ones that we've seen so far, they haven't been that effective. 
So a vaccine is really what governments are going to look to stock up on uh, in order to protect their citizens. So that's the main excitement, I'd say. And we're going to talk about the study that they just published in The Lancet. And the title of it is Safety and Immunogenicity of the CHADOX1 and COVID-19 Against SARS-CoV-2, a Preliminary Report of a Phase 1-2 Single-Blind Randomized Control Trial. So I don't know if it's just me, but all the videos I've been seeing when people pronounce SARS-CoV-2, they say SARS-CoV-2, and maybe I'm a little autistic or something, but I just hate when they say the CoV rather than COV. Anyway, it's just an aside. But back to the study, they published this in The Lancet on July 20th of 2020, and this journal has an impact factor of 59.1. And just for those who don't know, the impact factor of a journal is kind of the metric by which it's compared to other journals. So the higher the impact factor, the better the journal is, the more readership it tends to have, even though people do complain about how reliable that metric is. But um, 59.1 is a very high impact factor. It's very well read amongst scientists, medical professionals, and things like that. The editor is Richard Horton, and he's been the editor for quite some time now. I think he's going on two or three decades by now. And he's overseen a number of different controversies related to the journal. And I've outlined the ones that were highlighted in Wikipedia. Um, some notable ones here is the Andrew Wakefield publication related to autism and the MMR vaccine. And then another one are the study with hydrochloroquine. So we'll talk about that in a second. But also notice here the journal, which is a medical journal, has a lot of commentary on things like the Iraq War, as well as an open letter to the people of Gaza. So what this tells me is that there's a lot of outside factors that are able to influence what this journal publishes, because I don't see any reason why The Lancet should be talking about things like the Israel-Palestine conflict or the war in Iraq. So that's something to keep in mind when you're reading anything in any of these journals, but these controversies in The Lancet specifically, I think, should make you a little bit cautious. And what I mean to say about that is that each individual article needs to be evaluated on its own merit, and that just because it's published in The Lancet doesn't mean that it's not a piece of garbage. One thing I wanted to point everybody to related to the politicization of this journal is the recently retracted study titled Hydrochloroquine or Chloroquine with or without a Macrolide for Treatment of COVID-19, a Multinational Registry Analysis. So for those who don't know, and I didn't really talk about this when it came out, but there were some studies that came out announcing that hydrochloroquine did not have a benefit when it came to preventing SARS-CoV-2 infection. And this is one of those studies. And then we saw about a week after it was published that The Lancet retracted it. And this was based off of the company, I think it was called Surgisphere, was not able to provide the raw data, or they were unwilling to. And this put doubt in a lot of people's minds, as well as the journal themselves. Um, and then they retracted that about a week later. And if the journal was being totally honest, I would say that they should have waited longer to get more information, or they should have been more diligent with their reviewers in making sure that they were able to actually get some kind of raw data from Surges here before actually publishing. So The Lancet was just too excited. They just had to publish this study before doing their due diligence, and then they ended up getting a retraction. For this reason, The Lancet is definitely a politicized journal, but this doesn't mean that the AstraZeneca study isn't high quality. But it does, like I mentioned, just mean that we need to evaluate the article on its own merit. Okay, with that all being said, 
Let's talk about the COVID vaccine CHAD-OX1. And what this is, is a replication deficient simian adenoviral vector containing the full length structural surface glycoprotein, spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. And just to give a background on adenoviruses, we've heard a lot about AAV vectors, which are adeno-associated viral vectors, and they're based off of adenoviruses, which normally in the wild, I think they contribute to the common cold, um, so most people have been exposed to them before, but basically what this is, is a type of gene therapy where they put this spike protein on an AV backbone, and then they're giving it to patients. So some benefits of this viral vector is that adenoviruses don't integrate into the host genome. So this is good because you, there's no risk of it interrupting an existing biological process in your nucleus, which is good. And it also does not replicate in dividing cells. So it's only going to be your somatic cells that are kind of affected by it, which means that your gut cells and your fertility cells aren't going to really express it that much. And one other concern, like in normal gene therapies, is that because it's an adenovirus, what could happen is your body's immunity could specifically target the viral backbone itself. And the concern there is that there might not be a possibility of redosing because once your body has those defense mechanisms against the backbone, it could attack the backbone specifically when redosed, thus preventing any kind of efficacy in the future. So that's something that we've talked about loosely when it comes to other gene therapies, and there's no exception here, unfortunately. But in terms of the demographics between the two groups, they were largely unchanged when it came to uh, sex, age, non-smoker, non-drinker, or BMI. So the first thing I want to talk about is the side effects. And if you remember in the Moderna study, we saw that every single patient with the 100 microgram dose experienced some kind of systemic side effect. Now they weren't all very serious, but they were all experienced by the patients. When it came to this vaccine here, the AstraZeneca vaccine, almost everybody experienced some kind of local tenderness of where it was injected. Um, but generally the vaccine was well tolerated. We can see here in the image the systemic side effects and what I want to make note of is around 40% of patients experienced fatigue, headache, malaise, and muscle ache, with most of them being relatively mild. So I think in general what this means is it's a little bit better tolerated than the Moderna vaccine, but that doesn't really hold too much water because these are also healthy volunteers. So we still need to see how this vaccine, as well as the Moderna vaccine, are tolerated in at-risk COVID populations. So these are elderly patients in particular, and we want to be careful about things like fatigue or um, malaise or headache, as well as things like fever. But what's nice to see here is we don't see some of the real dangerous systemic side effects like anaphylaxis. So between this one and the Moderna vaccine, they are tolerable side effects, but we still need to see whether or not patients that are at risk for COVID-19 also experience only a mild version of these side effects. So this is nice to see. I would say this is a plus for AstraZeneca as opposed to Moderna. Next, let's talk about the humoral effectiveness. And what I'm talking about here specifically is the ability of the vaccine to generate an antibody response. So the experiment that I want to focus on here again is this PRNT experiment. And you know, look at the paper itself if you want to see some of the other experiments they did in the paper. But for me, I think this is one of the most impressive experiments to show that you're actually generating some kind of effect here. And I'm not going to go into the details of the experiment because I've explained it numerous times now in my other videos. So check those out. But it's called the plaque reduction neutralization test. 
And what it does is you're looking at a diluted form of serum and its ability to prevent infection in cells in culture. So that's what we're looking at here. And what they did here is took serum at day 28 after vaccination, and they showed that at a titer of around 256 on average, they were able to prevent about 50% of infection when serum was mixed with live SARS-CoV-2 virus. So a couple things to note is that Moderna actually saw a much larger effect. Even in the 25 microgram dose, they saw a titer of 512 work. And in the 100 microgram dose, I think it was upwards of 1,024. And on top of that, they also tested the PRNT at 80. So what this means is that their threshold for success was 80% prevention of infection, as opposed to AstraZeneca that only did PRNT at 50. So it's a little bit of a technical consideration, but in general, we still don't know whether a titer of 256 is enough to still prevent infection in live humans in vivo, because all of this is being done in vitro, which just means in a culture dish. So both of these could be winners, but what it looks like here is that Moderna's vaccine actually does garner a higher titer than that of AstraZeneca. Moving on to the cellular effectiveness, and this is something that a lot of people are starting to look at now, which some people think is a more important indicator of longevity when it comes to um, ability to prevent infection. And this is the ability for T cells to respond to the virus. And so what I'm showing here is an Ellispot assay where they looked at the ability of, of PBMCs, which is peripheral blood monocytes that are able to release or are like primed to release interferon gamma in response to SARS-CoV-2 peptides. So what this is telling us here is how many T cells are responsive to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And specifically when we're looking at interferon gamma, we're looking at either CD4 cells or CD8 cells, and these are the beneficial T cells that are involved in mounting a robust cellular response. But like I've mentioned in a previous video, what we really want to see is a CD8 memory T cell response because that tends to correlate with better disease outcomes and longevity of protection. And this is, you know, look at some reviews that talk about this, but that's what we want to see. And what we were led to believe in some of the preliminary media releases from, you know, the company or people that had heard about the company was that the AstraZeneca vaccine was mounting both a very strong humoral response as well as a cellular response. And this is the data specifically related to the cellular response. And so here's some things to note. They're only looking at total PBMCs. And what Moderna was able to show us is specifically in CD4 T cells or specifically CD8 T cells. And the AstraZeneca data doesn't really do that. What they're showing here is that out of 1 million PBMCs that we'll, we'll use the prime boost as an example, at day 14, which garners the highest response, 1,000 cells are able to release interferon gamma in response to SARS-CoV-2 peptides. So if we do the math, 1,000 cells over 1 million is only 0.1%. And comparing that to the CD4 response from Moderna, that's actually half as well as they did. Now, another caveat to that is that the denominator is total peripheral blood monocytes, or PBMCs. And within that, there are subsets of CD4 cells, CD8 cells. So in general, in a single prep of PBMCs, around 30% of them are CD8 cells. So if we do that math again and say 1,000 divided by a million, but only 30% of that denominator, we get around 0.4%.
So that's kind of on the higher range of what Moderna saw here, but we don't know how many of these cells are actually CD8 cells. So all of this is to say that we're still kind of left wanting on whether or not the AstraZeneca vaccine is able to mount a robust CD8 memory T cell response. But uh, I will say that it is encouraging that we're seeing some kind of PBMC response when it comes to interferon gamma release, but we still don't know whether that's going to lead to long-term protection against SARS-CoV-2 infection. So unfortunately, we don't really have an answer on whether one is better. I would say that this is pretty much a push between Moderna and AstraZeneca. And the reason for that is we don't know whether or not any of this response that we're seeing here is due to a CD8 response or a CD4 response. If it's only a CD4 response, then it's very similar to the Moderna vaccine. If it's only a CD8 response, then I would say that it's actually better than the Moderna vaccine. But without those details, and because they only did PBMCs generally, uh, we don't really have an idea. And maybe I'm wrong on this, so if somebody's read the paper to some extent and I've missed something, please let me know because that would change my opinion here on whether or not one is better than the other. But uh, in terms of sort of future catalysts that are coming for this, they're doing a phase two and three trial in the UK with up to 10,000 patients. And they're recruiting for that. And the first data should come in H2 of 2020. And then they're also doing trials in South Africa, Brazil, and the United States. And this data they're saying should come in the second half of this year as well. So it really looks like at the second half of this year, we're going to get the data. And then maybe in early 2021, we're going to have some vaccines that are going to be, you know, distributed and ready to go. And specifically, I'd say the benefit to AstraZeneca here is that because they're such a juggernaut, they have the ability to streamline this very quickly. So they've already mentioned here that they have the manufacturing down with a HEC 293 cell line ready to produce yields of thousands of doses per liter of bioreactor material. So they're going to very quickly be able to get lots of doses of this vaccine ready to go for patients. One thing I've not really talked about is their cocktail of neutralizing antibodies for the treatment of COVID-19, but that to me, that's not really as interesting as the vaccine. So look into that in your own time if you're interested, but the, the vaccine definitely has potential. And really what I think we're going to see is approval of both of these vaccines and both Moderna and AstraZeneca are probably going to get the green light to distribute them in the world. And we'll see how that goes. But like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm not going to take a position in AstraZeneca, nor am I going to take one in Moderna. Uh, it's funny to me that Moderna was at around half of the market cap as AstraZeneca, given that Moderna makes no money. Um, and AstraZeneca generated $6 billion in Q2 of 2020. So for comparison's sake, I outlined a few other companies that are looking at developing a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. Um, AstraZeneca, $73 billion market cap. Moderna did sell off quite a bit since my last video. And they're now sitting at only a $28 billion market cap, which is still very high in my opinion. They have started their phase three trial and they've mentioned that their phase two is actually completed enrollment. So we should see data for phase two in the next month or two. Another company is Novavax and they have a market cap of $8 billion. And I think they said that they're gonna announce data late July of 2020, but since we're in August already, we haven't seen it yet. So it should be coming pretty soon. And then another company, ticker symbol INO, has a market cap of $3 billion, but they're still pretty early. And they've released non-human primate data on the 30th of July. So there's a lot of players out there, but I'm just not super excited about the space. So I'm happy to sit on the sidelines and uh, kind of watch it all play out. But 
Definitely check out both papers, the Moderna one and the AstraZeneca one. There's a lot of interesting insight, and I think it preps anyone who's interested in immunology to get some kind of background on the space. So that's what I've enjoyed about this, uh, this whole thing. So that's all I've got. We're going to talk now about the portfolio that I have here. And I mentioned on Twitter that I took an additional position in TGTX, KPTI, as well as AXGT. And I mentioned here the prices at which I got them at. A couple things I wanted to mention for the next little while is Trevina has their PDUFA date on August 7th. They've done very well for me. I wish I took a larger position than just 1% of my portfolio, but I'm up around 170% on the stock so far. Um, I would not buy up here, to be honest. I'm waiting for the actual PDUFA date to come, and then we're going to hopefully see some good news, and then I'm going to sell off. I, I don't really want to hold it much longer than that, but they have done me pretty well. Another company that's seen a big increase is Actinium Pharma, and I'm kind of nervous because I saw a lot of posts on Reddit and a whole variety of different subreddits on Actinium, and I think a lot of this increase is just due to an artificial kind of pump that's going on, but or also because there's no data that's been released. So I still think it's worth holding to see the data, so that's what I'm going to do and kind of ride out the wave. But, you know, trading at 57 cents, I could see it kind of sell back off into 37 given that we've just seen a lot of astroturfed excitement about the stock. And yeah, that's pretty much all I've got for updates. Um, year to date, I'm sitting at 11%, kind of just below the DIA. My portfolio sold off alongside the XBI, but you know, I think like I mentioned, the temporary setbacks regarding the executive orders aren't really gonna affect the XBI as much as the IBB, which actually I don't have here. Hmm, must have been a problem with my transferring this file, but Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll be sure to put that in in the next video. But yeah, that's uh, going to do it for me today. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Appreciate all the support. Please like and hit the subscribe. That definitely helps out the show. And tell a friend if you think anybody else is interested in this kind of content, and that would also help out the show too. So with that, we're going to wrap there. But thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.